Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, and this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be with you today. Today I want to talk about history. I want to talk about miracles. And I want to try to help us as a people, right, as listeners, to kind of come to grips with what it means to tell a history and and how we've told those stories versus how those stories have really happened. And what I want to say is is this, and I don't really know what direction this episode is going to go. We'll see how this turns out. But I look at the Old Testament, for instance, right? And I see, like, we have hinged, in the very here and now, we have hinged our prophets, seers, and revelators to those prophets, seers, and revelators. That, in, in essence, if if the Old Testament is a myth and fictional stories even on top of that, then something is lost in the here and now, right? Like we can't go into people's houses with missionary tags on our, on our shirts, sit down with people and say, like, we have prophets, seers and revelators, and they are just like Moses, Noah and Abraham. When Moses, Noah and Abraham, if when Moses, Noah and Abraham are mythical fictional characters. And so here's the trouble. When you go into the Old Testament, you don't have verifiable history. There are very few historians that recorded things that we have today. There's very little verifiable history, right? So you can do archaeology and you can determine that places existed, or you might even get lucky and find someone's name on a stone or parchment. And so historically, you could show evidence and to some extent make the case that somebody existed. But you can't verify the events of their life. Like when you go back into the Old Testament time, you go 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years ago, there, there's not a newspaper. There's no radio programs. There's no television. There's no recording from multiple eyewitnesses the events that occurred. At the very best, you have one person saying, yeah, there were 400 people there. But in, but that doesn't really hold up. And so you have these instances in the Old Testament, for instance, right? You got Moses parting the Red Sea. What a miracle, right? He does all these things where he turns the water red or causes locusts or frogs to come into the town, puts blood up on the doors of all the Jewish people so that the firstborn of the, uh, the Egyptians dies, but the, the Hebrews are just fine. 
You've got Noah building a boat for all of animal kind. And eight human beings get on and take care of those animals and, and the dynamics of, of all that that requires works out just fine. You've got Joseph being sold into Egypt and, and being imprisoned and prophesies and he gets out of prison and is, gets his relationship with Pharaoh and becomes this top guy who able then to, to rescue his family from their own peril later on. You've got Enoch, right? Who, who, who gets his whole city to be so righteous that they're, the earth around them is just like dug up in this chunk of earth with their city on it just goes up into the heavens. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel and, and many of these tribes being scattered and forever within our church as well as the Christian tradition, us teaching that these tribes were still somewhere, that we were someday going to just happen upon this tribe and they would know they were that tribe, but they were kind of lost and kept separate and outside of the rest of the, the world. You've got Jonah who's being swallowed by a whale. And you've got Job who who has all these things happen to him. And in every miracle story, in every miracle story, we look at these. And I'm not talking like miracle, like medical miracle. Like 9 out of 10 people die from this disease and 1 out of 10 live. And that person who lived, it's a miracle they're alive. Like I grant that there are medical miracles. That doesn't mean there is not explanations for them. It just means like this person got a break when everybody else didn't and thank goodness they did, right? Even if you go look at, for instance, cancer, there's a certain number of cancer cases, a certain percentage. And it's, and it's not, it's not super, super small. It's actually, I don't want to say significant, but statistically significant, you know, 3%, 4%, whatever it is that when someone is diagnosed with cancer, that it just disappears. Soon after that, that it wasn't necessarily a matter of like medical treatment or got a priesthood blessing. It was just, it went away. It was gone. And so I'm not talking about those kinds of miracles. I'm not talking about the ones that are certainly big and important and dynamic to the individual, but, but not, but not maybe, maybe more mundane to the community. What I'm talking about today are the magic miracles. I'm talking about the big ones, right? The things that we go, that was God coming down and doing his thing. And when we look at those times throughout scripture that that happens, we find that these stories have no verifiable history around them. And all we can do as believers is stand back and look at these stories and say, that was the gift and power of God. Like Moses parted the sea. And whether people wrote it down or not, I know it happened. Well, how could it happen? Because God is a worker of miracles. And God can do that. And so we grant as believers, we grant that these miracles occurred. And while we can't explain them on any level, we recognize that God is great. And he can do these kinds of things. But here's the trouble. Here's the rub. When you fast forward to 2017 or even go back to, let's go 1850, right? The moment you start having people record history, 
the moment you start having the ability for multiple people who experience an event to write that event down and to speak about that event, those kinds of miracles disappeared. They vanished. And I'm going back to 1850. You can go back further than that, right? You can go back to whatever, the 1700s probably. And, and the magic kind of miracles, these really big supernatural elements being twisted and turned and done with in a way that is just impossible in, in the normal human experience, those disappeared. And we're trying to figure out like why? And, and you can sense, you can sense in the church right now, right this minute, there's this, this cognitive dissonance, right? That we look at our current leaders and there are people in the middle of faith crisis, the middle of a faith transition who are looking at these leaders and they're saying like, I don't see any prophecy. I don't see any seeing and I don't see any revelating. I don't see any miracles. I don't see any kind of God magic going on. And yet we're being told that these men are just like those men in the Old Testament. And so these people who are struggling, they're having to rationalize, like, why is it different now than then? And, and I think what this compels us to do, if we're, if we're humble enough to say, like, look, I have some comfortable beliefs and I'd like to hold those, but I'm willing to let those go if the information overrides them. And I want to know the information. And if we open ourselves up to the information, what we learn really quickly is that lots of different religions have myths that they tell around their culture, right? And so we realize that if we go into the Hindu faith, they have a set of scripture called the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is full of these fable-like stories. And when I say myth, like myth is used in two ways. One way myth can be used is just to say a made-up false story designed to teach us a value or to give us some cultural identity. But myth doesn't have to be a false story. Myth can be an embellished story, an exaggerated story, or myth can be something true that happened, right? So when we talk about Joan of Arc and we talk about the things that she did, even if we just focus on the real facts and history of what happened there, to the best of our ability, granting that history always misses a 100% complete representation of the truth, right? But if we look at Joan of Arc and we, we tell her story from a factual basis, it's still a myth. It's still this story that's told to help us as a culture form an identity, specifically the culture that that story thrived in. It was meant for those people to teach them about their identity, who they are, and and to teach values like here's bravery, here's courage. And once we see like the Bhagavad Gita has all these mythical fable type stories in it, and and for you and me, if we picked up the Bhagavad Gita and read it, we would go, yeah, those, those stories are not true. Like there's talking deers and there's magic spells and it's just, that's, that's fiction. The trouble is we have to apply that same type of critical analysis to our own stories. And when we go back and look at the Old Testament, it is also full of talking animals and magic spells and crazy kind of supernatural miracles. And yet we just take them for granted and we don't ever for a second connect the dots and say this. I grant 
that the people who wrote the Bhagavad Gita and the people who shared that story in their community and the people who heard that story in their community, they found value in it. It was fiction, but it was designed to help them as a people see their place in the universe and help them to make meaning out of life. Again, we don't take the next step and go, hmm, I wonder if the stories of Moses, Noah, Abraham, Joseph of Egypt, Enoch, the 12 tribes, Jonah and Job, are those mythical stories highly embellished or completely fictionalized in order to give us meaning in our lives and to make meaning of the world, right? When you look at the way in which the world sees itself, most people being in this tribal mentality, and if you're in a tribe, like your tribe is the best tribe, and the only way to share with your children and your children's children and your children's children's children that your tribe is the best tribe is to create stories that tell about how awesome your tribe is. But again, once we get to verifiable history, these all kind of disappear. The kinds of miracles that God does, they come down a whole lot of notches, right? And so we look at some of these stories and, and the believer says, like, let's leave room for God to be like magical, incredibly awesome at doing things, and he can make things happen that there is just simply no way it would have happened otherwise. For instance, parting the sea, right? So when Moses parts the sea, there's no other explanation for that than than that God, through Moses, has done something magical, something supernatural. Supernatural to the point that there's no explanation for it, right? And if Noah builds a boat big enough that houses all the animals on the earth, and somehow when this floods over, God's able to disperse these animals and get the penguins back to Antarctica and get the kangaroos back to Australia and also get the other marsupials. Like, for whatever reason, God says, look, Australia is kind of a unique place, guys. I want to get all the marsupials there. So get the koala bears there. Get the kangaroos Get a few other marsupials. Like, let's get them there. And don't forget the panda bears. They also have to go with them. And somehow God picks up all the skeleton bones of those animals along the way. Or maybe the kangaroos pick up all the skeleton bones and put them in a knapsack and carry them back as they die. Some of them die along the way. Like, we don't have a good explanation. And if we want to hold the story, the only choice we have is to say God is magical. He can do anything, even if we can't explain it. And he also is hiding the evidence of that event happening. Except we jump to today and these things no longer happen. Like, look around. Nobody's parting seas. Nobody's getting swallowed by a whale for three days and living. Let's just talk for a moment about Enoch. So Enoch has this city. And this city's on this earth. And they are so righteous that God just has to get them away from the rest of mankind. So God somehow carves out their city in the land roundabout, right? Takes it right up out of the earth and takes it up into heaven, right? But that story was created at a time when a people believed in a three-tier universe, right? That the earth was this middle tier and heaven is above us and hell is below us. 
And in a three-tier universe, something can be taken up into heaven. The trouble now is that we now know the earth is round. The earth rotates. What is above me in the heavens right now is below me in 12 hours, right? And so we realize like the earth is rotating. And so what's up is not always up. And what's down is not always down. And what's sideways is not always sideways. And there really isn't a sideways because we're talking about a sphere. And there is no heaven above. Heaven is somewhere way out there. In Mormonism, it's near this star named Kolob, but way out there. And that way out there in relationship to the earth is different every second. And at the same time, right, hell is not below. We know that if we dig down into the earth, we get to the earth's core. And on the other side of the earth's core, if we just keep digging, we come out in the middle of China. So we realize like there is no heaven above and earth below. And so to say the city of Enoch is just taken up into the sky in today's understanding of science becomes a ridiculous, absurd, implausible story. And yet we still want to somehow hold it. There was an Enoch. He did have a city. He did get his people to be righteous. They were Zion and they were taken up. But there's no explanation for that. There's no way in today's understanding of the world that that's even possible. But we say it doesn't matter because God is great and God can do great miracles. Except nobody's doing anything like that today, right? And we say the 12 tribes, they're all from these various, we don't hold that ground today. Like now we say, oh, I think we're either intermixed with everybody else. We don't really know where 12 tribes are. There really isn't 12 tribes in 12 locations scattered on the earth. Rather, we're all the 12 tribes, we've all intermixed, and that story just died. You see, every time that science and religion butt heads, religion has to concede ground. Now, please understand me. I fully agree that science also has to concede ground. But science only concedes ground when it comes up against better science. Every time science... And religion meet and there is a disagreement, eventually religion concedes the ground. It's this idea of the God of gaps that in our human history, every time there is a, a, a hole, every time there is missing information, every time we cannot figure out why something happens, we use God to explain why that thing occurs. So we look at why one army beats another army, why this person died, why this person lived. And when we can't come to an immediate explanation, we simply say, oh yeah, God did that. And we've come up with reasons why I'm better than you, because God did that, right? Valiancy in the pre-mortal life, for instance. Or I'm the chosen people. You're the Gentiles and we are the chosen seed of God. Like we have these things we do that create our identities but if we just step back, we have to come to grips that the nature of miracles in the here and now is drastically, drastically different than the miracles then. And as we look at these kinds of these things, we have to like wrestle deeply with the idea that when you have unverifiable history, when there is no checks and balances to make sure we're telling an accurate story, that throughout 
human history, it has been completely natural to create supernatural stories. It has been completely natural to create characters like Zeus and Hercules. It has been human nature to create superheroes and villains, to create a god of miracles who is doing incredible things for his people and against those who are not his people. And we have to like understand like these stories weren't even written stories forever. Like it's one thing if people are putting stories on paper and those written stories are making their way through time. Instead, these are oral traditions that as much as we like to say the Old Testament is a written document, we have to come to grips that this is thousands, if not tens of thousands of years of oral traditions and when you have an oral tradition, again, this is demonstrable. We can show this, that when you tell oral traditions over the course of a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, eight thousand years, that story, how it ends up, is severely different than the story we started with. It's the telephone game over eternity. It is 30 generations telling a story and that story, for for it to be what it claims to be, it had to have stayed intact as an oral tradition. And the likelihood of that based on science and the studies of language and the studies of oral histories and the studies of myths and fables puts it so statistically low that it is essentially, it is essentially absurd. And so if we're going to defend Moses having parted a sea, we're going to defend Noah building a boat for all of human, for all of animal kind and for eight humans to take care of all of those animals and to disperse all the marsupials to Australia and the penguins to Antarctica. Then we've got to figure out like why that's not happening today. And again, nobody wants to have this conversation because it forces a dramatic shift in how we interpret these things today. Like if the Old Testament is not literal, and, and let's go one step further. If some of the events in Jesus's life are not literal, then what does that mean? And, and once we recognize like, ooh, ooh, this, this leads us here. Ooh, and this leads us there. Then again, this gets a whole lot messier. And, and I simply would want to say two stories. One is that there was a comp, and what led me to, to go into this episode is that Recently on Facebook, there was a conversation about Moroni. And and again, we don't know where Moroni started off at. Let's assume for a moment that Moroni is a real human being who lived a long time ago, who who was one of the Nephites and was the last person to write on the plates that Joseph Smith received. The The story we tell about Moroni, and again, it's part of the problem is that we've overreached and we've made claims that as science and understanding and common sense and rationale have developed, we now recognize that we overreach because these stories have now become absurd. So again, I grant, I don't know where Moroni started off at. Let's assume it's Central America, but you could make it the heartland uh, theory as well. And, and again, I don't know any other argument out there for a workable geography than those two. And those two have serious issues. The Mesoamerican model, the geography works pretty well. 
But the items that are there, the archaeology that's there, right? The, the discovery of, of the things that exist in that geography are contrary to what the Book of Mormon tells us should be there. So the geography works, the archaeology doesn't. If we move up to the heartland theory, the archaeology works better, but the geography falls flat on its face. And and I'm not trying to upset either party there. If you stand with one of those, great. You can send me tons of links that support. Listen, I've read all that. And I'm not disagreeing that there aren't some corollary material. But I'm saying far and wide there are severe issues with archaeology in the one and geography in the other. And strangely, both camps also support that about the other camp, right? So while the Mesoamerican model believers would like to argue with Bill Real that, sure, the archaeology works. Don't argue that. That's silly. Here's tons of links. Here's the things we're finding. Yet all the heartland people would say, nah, archaeology isn't working. And the, and the heartland people would say, you're, you're complaining about our geography. Our geography is solid here. And yet all of the Mesoamerican Book of Mormon uh, believers have looked at that heartland theory and said, man, that geography just doesn't work. So realizing that, let's assume it's Central America. But again, it can be the heartland. You can put Moroni in Ohio if you want to. Moroni doesn't just need to be at the Hill Cumorah. And, and let's assume for a moment, when we say Hill Cumorah, we're talking the Drumlin in New York. So I grant, and, and so do all LDS scholars, by the way, that in spite of the fact that our church holds the ground that the hill in New York is the final battle place of the Jaredites and the Nephites and Lamanites, the reality is there is zero, zero evidence. And all the faithful scholars in the church look at that hill Cumorah and say there's nothing there. But let's let's at least acknowledge that that's where Moroni ends up. Because the plates are in the hill for Joseph to find. Now, here's the trouble. Moroni doesn't just need to be at that hill in Palmyra, New York. Moroni has to go all the way out to Manti, Utah to bless the temple site and then make his way all the way back to the hill in New York. And you say, yeah, so what? Again, that comment, like, okay, so he did it. That comment is is ignorant of the reality of just how impossible that journey is. He's not driving in a car on a road. He's not even pulling a handcart. He doesn't have any help. The logistics of that journey are impossible. And to take it one step further, I was at a Fair Mormon conference where uh, I moderated a session a few years ago. You won't be able to find it now because it's been completely uh, eradicated from the historical record. But I was at a Fair Mormon conference a few years ago in Salt Lake City. This would have been in uh, 2013. And Mark um, Wright, that's his name. I had, to, I had to think of it here for a second. But Mark Wright, uh, a scholar in the church, he, he gave a talk called Heartland as Hinterland. The Mesoamerican Core and North American Periphery of Book of Mormon Geography. 
And when the conversation was over, there was a Q&A after each of these sessions, and there was a Q&A after this one. And the conversation uh, revolved around, one of the questions revolved around Moroni having to make it from Mesoamerica to the Drumlin in New York. And the argument was that the Heartland theory should be held on to because it's impossible for a man to make it from Central America to New York all by himself. And Mark Wright answers the question and says, you know, yeah, it's a really difficult journey. And very, 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 very uh, few people would even could even accomplish such a task. And then he pointed out, but there is one case, one case in the historical record of a person by themselves traveling that distance. But here's the trouble. Nobody asked the follow-up question. Uh, excuse me. Uh, Moroni doesn't just go from Central America to the Drumlin in New York. Moroni has to go from Central America all the way out to Manti, Utah on foot, going through woods, going up mountains, finding water, finding food, dealing with wildlife, not, you know, the thousands and thousands of logistical issues in doing that. And then Moroni has to go all the way back to New York, to the hill, to bury the plates. And so the first thing is to say, like, that's impossible. And the immediate answer is, but that's the gift and power of God. Like, God can do that. God could help Moroni. God could put fish in his basket. God could cause the forest to just open up. God could cause a star to be overhead so that so that Moroni knows exactly where he's going. God can cause the animals to fall asleep as Moroni walks by them. But again, throughout verifiable history in the historical record, there is no instance of that kind of magic and supernatural uh, phenomenon at work. And so then someone comes back and says, that, no, no, Moroni doesn't need to do that. Moroni as a spirit, so he may, he may, may have as a spirit went to the hill in New York and buried the plates. Like, we don't know if he did that in mortality or not. But again, you, here's the issue. And, and again, I'm sorry I'm stammering. At every single turn, it is only when stories are likely fictional and have no historical evidence that we need them to be real and hence we invoke that God worked a miracle. In every instance that we have that is historically verifiable, that is, that has multiple witnesses attesting to it who were present at the events and are recording it in a way that the community can say that didn't happen or that did happen. There is no miracles of the, of this degree. They are gone. They don't happen. And I'm not saying they can't. I'm not saying the ability isn't there. I'm simply saying there is a discrepancy in human beings' experience today versus then. And we don't want to address it or talk about it. We want to pretend they are the same, and we treat our religion as if it is the same. Think about it. The average Mormon and gets this instruction from the top down, the average Mormon believes like this is still a day when these kinds of miracles are happening, 
And yet if you ask them to point them out, they would then have to go to their tool bag of explanations and explain why they don't or why they don't see them. And sure, again, I'm not arguing that people don't have spiritual experiences and some of them are miraculous to them. We're not talking about miracles. We're talking about the degree of miracles. And the miracles that happen today are are small and minute compared to the dramatic things that God was able to do with the elements back then. And so when we look at things like the Book of Mormon and we say prophets then seem to have the pretty accessible ability to strike a critic dead or dumb or mute, right? And when we look at today, like I'm throwing a question out and I'm not going to answer. I'm simply leaving it there for you to think on. Does President Monson, does he have the access to a power to strike a critic deaf or mute or dead? Like, does he have the ability? Like, can he vocally say, I pray that God shut your mouth and that person be mute? Like, I don't see that kind of thing happening today. That would be pretty miraculous, right? Like, you essentially are stating before it happens that something with no other explanation is going to happen. Nothing out of the ordinary occurs that could cause it. And that person is suddenly struck mute. Those kinds of miracles are gone. And I'm not saying they're not accessible or they could happen. I'm saying they're simply not present in our community. They're not present on the earth in any other religious community. Nobody's seeing these things. Nobody's parting seas. Nobody's calling down fireballs from heaven. Nobody's being struck mute or deaf or dead at the command of a religious leader. It's not happening. And we've got to explain why. And the best explanation, again, I'm not imposing this as my perspective, but the best explanation is to say the Old Testament is highly embellished, if not completely fictional stories, designed to create meaning and identity and to answer the questions of those people in their day. That they were formed in a time when the science and understanding of the world was very different, and they filled those gaps in with these stories. And when we fast forward to today, like this type of mechanism is no longer operating in the same manner. And so either God has said, woo, people are now writing down and taking pictures and recording on their smartphones what's happening. So I'm just going to stay out of the way. I'm not going to give them that kind of proof, right? That's a possibility. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's a possibility. You could argue that. You could argue that God has just distanced himself from performing these things because mankind either isn't worthy of them, shame on us, we're just too incredibly awesome now, so good for us, or God would not want these events to take place in a time of verifiable history because that would that would remove the option for faith. But again, that feels like mental gymnastics. And so my hope in having this conversation today is that some of us can kind of just think about this. The nature of miracles and the degree of miracles that occurred then, in that day and age, in a time when nobody could actually show whether it actually happened or not, and the kinds of miracles that occur today in a time where if these things happened, we would have video footage on a smartphone 
newspapers would be reporting it and it would be on the six o'clock news and suddenly those things no longer occur. And, and my ending here, because what it feels like I just did was completely deconstruct the nature of the stories we tell about the miracles of God. But what I'm hoping we can move to, like if, if I just take like your little machine, I just deconstructed it, took all the screws out, took all the parts off, and now it's laying on the table in a thousand pieces. What I would want to do now is look back at all of that and look at all those pieces and screws and parts and pick up each piece one by one and say, does this have value to me? Like, like, like here, I got a piece. Does that piece have value to me? I got another piece. Does that piece have value to me? And if the piece has value, if it, if it helps you make meaning of the world, then by all means, pick it back up and put it back in your bag. But if that piece is hurting somebody, if that piece is absurd and implausible and doesn't make sense, and it's not giving you positive value, then take it and throw it in the dumpster and toss it away. You don't need it. And and what happens when you claim your own faith back is you say, like, I look at the Old Testament, and to me those are highly embellished mythical stories. But once I grant inside my mind that that's what they are, I still feel complete access to go back to those stories and still find value and meaning. But I'm also not going to let anyone impose a magic story on me as literal. Not then and not now. And so faith has to be reasonable. Nobody Nobody should challenge us to believe the implausible and absurd. If that's the case, then Scientology has a great argument. Like the reason we shouldn't all run and join Scientology, and the church would agree, is because Scientology doesn't make sense. It's not that faith is only an option, right? We try to make this argument that faith needs to be equal, that there should be evidence on both sides, And that faith is like stepping out into the darkness and believing when it's not like provable. Like you're, you're, like there's some reason to believe, but also there's reason to not believe. I'm not talking about that. I'm all for it. When there's a lot of gray area and the evidence is somewhat equal, then God bless us for choosing to have faith. What I'm saying is that there are parts of our religion. There are parts of religion in general and there are parts of humanity that are absurd, and to believe them is to pretend in the face of mountains and mountains of evidence. And nobody should require a person to believe in the face of monumental evidence. There has to be reason for faith. There has to be, there has to be something there to say, this is good to me, it is good for me. It helps me to be good to others. And there is reason here to hold on to this. And if there's not, no one should compel you to hold it. Joseph Smith taught that Mormonism is truth. That wherever truth is, that Mormonism wants to incorporate it. Well, the opposite is true too. Mormonism is not bullcrap. Meaning that if there is something here that is false... That is demonstrably, demonstrably shows that we need to reframe it. 
Like the evidence that's sitting here points to us having to do this differently. No matter how comfortable it keeps us, no matter how much it just allows us to just move forward and not have to deal with it because it's comfortable and it makes us happy, Mormonism is not bullcrap. We've got to get to the point where we can shed it. It's my hope that we can see things as they really are, or at least closer to what they really are. That we won't base our life on on a literal take of highly embellished, non-historical, absurd, implausible narratives. That instead we would base our life on what really is healthy and what really is good for each other and what really helps each other to grow and progress and find value and meaning in life while not hurting somebody else. May the Lord warm your shoulders. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Taking out my issues never healed